You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has been given, for to everyone who has more will... For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's quite quite a parable we have before us this morning. Before we dive into it, will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that he showed and revealed your heart to us, that you are a friend of sinners. And that wherever we are this morning, whatever we're bringing in here, whether we're anxious, whether we're weary, whether we're angry, you're a God who doesn't recoil from us or pull back. You're a friend of sinners, and yet you're also holy. And so I pray this morning, as we open your word, we trust your spirit. He's at work. We we pray that he will open our eyes to some things we've never seen before. He'll remind us of things that we once knew but have been long forgotten. He will prick our hearts and bring the, the painful work of conviction where we need conviction, but also great comfort where we need that. Lord, we don't want to be the same people when we leave here this morning as we were who came in. We're asking you to do a work in our lives. And we're trusting you, knowing that you are eager to see us grow into the image of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the parable of the talents. 
This is a challenging one. Um, often when in the church or when Christians, they, they approach this parable, they use it to talk about, uh, they look to it to learn wisdom about how we should steward our finances. And while that's not wrong, it, I do think, especially in our journey through Matthew, it's important we keep this parable in context. Jesus is just a few days away from his arrest, trial, crucifixion. And all that's happening in 24 and 25, it's, a, it's really a, a private conversation, a private sermon that Jesus gives just to his disciples. As we looked at last week, he tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed in the years to come. And he also tells them that he's coming back at the end of the world, the second coming. And the focus here, second half of 24 and into 25, the, the main theme of it all is Jesus telling his disciples, be ready when I come back. Be ready. Live in a state of preparedness for my return. And he tells a bunch of stories, five parables. The first parable, he says, the, the message is basically, I'm going to come and no one's going to expect it. The second parable, he says, I'm going to come and it's going to be earlier than you expect, than some expect. Then the third parable, it's some people, they're going to think I'm coming right away and it's going to be longer than they expect. So the, the first three, his main point is, no one knows the day or hour that I'm returning. So you need to be ready and live in a state of readiness. And then he tells this parable, which isn't really about timing at all. This parable, Jesus gives wisdom to his disciples. He's saying, I want you to be wise about how you spend your days so that you will be ready when I return. And so what I want to do is, it's not too complicated of a parable, but it is kind of complicated and there's some confusing things in there. I want to briefly walk through it. And then I think there are three, three invitations for us from this story. But starting in verse 14, Jesus says, it, for it... What's it? It's the second coming. It's when God's kingdom comes in fullness. So this story is all about the end of history. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Now, when we hear the word talent, we think of gifts or natural abilities or something like that. And that's because of this parable. That's what we've drawn from this parable. But when Jesus shares this parable, a talent was actually a form of currency. It's a talent of gold. And it was a very, very large form of currency. There's some debate about how large, but most people agree that a talent was what the average worker would earn over half of their lifetime. This is not a small investment. It's somewhere in our day, it would be somewhere between $500,000 and a million dollars. And so we know a couple of things about this man who's going away on the journey. Number one, he's really wealthy. I mean, he's just handing out millions of dollars to his servants. And two, he's generous and trustworthy. And think about how much money that is. The guy who got five, I mean, what is it? Two, three, four, five million dollars. Even the guy who only got one talent, you know, sometimes you might feel bad for him. He's still got a million bucks. He's not doing bad either. 
Like the master has been generous to them all and he gives them to them. And the reason he gives them, and we know this as we follow the parable along, he gives it to them and he expects them to go put that money to work while he's away on his journey. Picking it up in verse 16, Jesus says, Now he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had the the two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. First two go to work. The third guy takes this talent. I like to think of them. Some translations call it bags of gold. I think that's kind of a helpful, fun illustration. First two guys take their bags of gold and they go put them to work. The third guy takes this. He digs a hole in the ground and buries it and covers it over. Now that might be, seem strange to us, but you have to remember back then they didn't have banks like we do. There was no FDIC. Oftentimes the safest way to secure your valuables was to bury them in a, the ground where no one would see them. Jesus actually tells a parable about this. And so this guy buries it while the other two go and invest. Jesus tells us in verse 19 that after a long time, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents? Here, I made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, way to go, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, which I think is fascinating. You've been faithful over millions of dollars. That's a little. Now you're going to be faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done. Way to go, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And that language there, it's imagery to, that depicts Christ's return, the, the great messianic banquet. Come on in and feast. And if the story ended there, it would be a great, wonderful, heartwarming story. I mean, it'd be kind of boring, but it would be a great story. But it doesn't. Finally, he who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. You can imagine this dirty bag of gold, him just kind of throwing it at the master. But his master answered him, I think there's a little, maybe some, some piercing, sharp sarcasm here. You wicked and slothful servant. So you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. Now, there weren't bankers, but there were money lenders, and they could give interest back, but even that was a bit risky. Nevertheless, you should have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. 
How could you do this? And then in verse 28, the master's attention moves to someone else, maybe one of the other servants. He says, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. What? For to everyone who has, will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then Jesus ends the story with a bang and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's quite a story. And quite an ending. <laughs> the guy didn't get a good return on his investment and so he's thrown into hell. What do we do with a parable like this? Well, one, we have to recognize that many of Jesus' parables are filled with some shocking elements that are disturbing, and that's intentional. Jesus throws in the absurd, the bizarre, the shocking to wake us up and to force us to think. Parables are not just simple stories that have a moral to be a good person. They're really these subversive stories that teach us what life in the kingdom of God is really like and how we can prepare ourselves and live faithfully in it. And so you hear a story like this one, and it just, it, it automatically raises questions, I think, for most of us. Was it really wrong for the servant to bury his talent of gold? <laughs> Didn't the master prove him right when he said, I know you're a hard man? And then he gets thrown into outer darkness? I wonder what questions it raises for you. I mean, part of these stories is to ask, okay, where would I fall? How would I respond? So you got to, on one hand, you got to have that information. That's what parables are. On the other hand, you, you have to remember, Jesus, this isn't a sermon to the masses. This is not a turn or burn message. Jesus is talking to his disciples He's preparing them for what life is going to be like after his ascension. His disciples have spent the last three years of their lives with him. They know that Jesus is overflowing with mercy and compassion for broken people and sinful people, including them. They know that Jesus, he said that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And so how does that square with this story? What are the invitations here? I've got three, three things that Jesus calls us to in the parable of the talents. The first one is what I would call ordinary faithfulness. My friend Jonah, he calls it local faithfulness. I kind of like that imagery as well. The first invitation from this is to be faithful, be a faithful servant with all that God has entrusted to you. Now, part of the reason we struggle with a parable like this and actually, the word servant could probably be better translated as slave, but slave, how we think of slavery, and in the context of our country, it's different than slavery was back then. Either way, this servant-slave concept, it's something we're familiar with, but we don't actually really know very well. I mean, most of us don't know people who actually live as servants of a master. That doesn't really happen too much in our society in this day. Now, we might watch a show like The Crown, uh, or if you're more into like superhero movies, you can think of Alfred and Batman. But a servant, we, we can get a window into it that they're a person who wakes up every day and asks, how can I serve my master? How can I meet their needs? 
How can I advance their wishes? And in the New Testament, servant is one of the primary ways that Christians are defined. We've been bought at a price. And Jesus tells us that we are to think of ourselves as servants of God. Now, the primary way, the primary way that we serve God is by being faithful to the things that he's put before us. The primary way we serve God is by being faithful to the things he's put before us. Money, sure. But our families, our relationships with our kids, with our parents, our jobs, even if we don't like them, or you wish you had a different job, your gifts, your abilities. Faithfulness in the little things is really how we demonstrate our faithfulness to God. Now, we see even in this parable that faithfulness will take different shape, take a different shape in different people's lives. One of the obvious truths in this text that's easy to overlook is that God gives different gifts, different responsibilities, different amounts of resources to different people. Verse 15, he gave different talents to different servants, each according to their ability. And so when I talk about ordinary faithfulness, it's going to look different depending on your stage of life and where God has you. Are you single? Are you married? Do you have little kids? Do you have grown-up kids? What about what's your relationship with your parents? What job do you have before you? And a lot of times what happens in the church is we can almost, we can almost demean these things that are an essential part of life, essential part of God's creation. We can downplay them. We can kind of go a different direction. No, 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 I want to be about, you know, I want to live radical for Jesus. And I don't want to demean that at all. I'm for that. I'm pro being radical disciples of Jesus and being radically committed to his word and his call. But I find that most of our life, faithfulness plays out in the ordinary moments. And our calling is not to be someone that God has not made us to be. Our calling is to be exactly who God has made us to be, but to be faithful in it. I mean, I think of who Jesus is talking to, who he shares this parable with. Peter? (laughs) Peter, I mean, he's going to have some embarrassing moments in the week ahead. But then he's going to rise up and be the leader of the church. It's going to be amazing. His brother Andrew... No one's ever really going to talk about him. And there are a lot of disciples, like the second Judas, the good Judas. No one ever really talked about them. God had given them different responsibilities, different calls, different responsibilities, but the same call, which was to be faithful with what he had given them. I want to challenge you, the way you live ready for the return of Christ is not by going crazy, not by surfing end times YouTube pages. It's by changing your kid's diaper. It's by loving your spouse. It's by reaching out to your parents. It's putting food on the table. That's the primary way. And yes, we can talk about radical, radical discipleship. But oftentimes people who talk about, we're going to be radical, have you mastered the ordinary is a great first question. Because if you can't master the ordinary, 
If you're not faithful with the little, Jesus says you won't be given much. And some of you, you've been raised in church contexts where you feel like a failure. You feel like you've never measured up to God's call in your life because you have what you think is a pretty ordinary job. You're a teacher, you're a librarian, you're a plumber, you're a barista. And I want to set you free from that. Living ready for Christ's return is being faithful with what he's entrusted to you. Julie Canlis writes, If being sold out is our goal, then we will eventually place the burden on people to do big things. And we might miss the worship of God that is mowing the lawn, paying the mortgage, tucking children into bed, running the coffee hours at church. Of course, we can always do these things better, but let us be on guard lest radical can become the new legalism. Now, please don't mishear me. Some Christians are called to take the gospel to unreached people groups. Some are called to storm the gates of hell, and I thank God for them. But a lot of Christians, they're called to live quiet lives working with their hands, as Paul says. And the way we live ready is we ask, am I being faithful with what God has put before me? In the ordinary, day to day. Number one, ordinary faithfulness. Number two, it's what I would call holy ambition. And what I mean by this, this is a necessary kind of, we've got to add this to the first one or else we can go off the rails in a different way. To prioritize ordinary faithfulness, it doesn't mean that we live passively or we check out or we disengage from what God has for us. I mean, I think what's so terrifying to me about this parable It's the servant who ends up in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did he do wrong? He didn't take the master's money and spend it on booze and women and wild living like the prodigal. He didn't go and put it in a bad pyramid scheme and and lose it all. Like, what did he do wrong? You know what he did? He... He took the money, put it safe, brought it back, gave it to the master. And the master says, you wicked, lazy, slothful servant, out of my sight, into the darkness. If that's not challenging or disruptive for you, I don't think you're paying attention to what Jesus is saying here. What did he do wrong? He didn't step in to the ordinary faithfulness that was before him. He went passive. He didn't embrace the call God put before his life. Now, the first two, they were willing to risk. And, you know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but it's, they were told that as soon as they got the talents, as soon as they got their bags of gold, they just kind of took off running, like, hi-ho, hi-ho, we're going to get this thing done. And they doubled it. And I'll tell you, you don't double your investment by investing in very safe things. <laughs> you don't double your investment by putting your money into utilities or something. The first two were willing to risk. They had what I'd call a holy ambition, an openness to step out in faith in order to fulfill the call of God on their lives. This is something we don't talk about enough in the church, but but there is this kind of sense from a lot of people, and this, the church can kind of beat this into us, to think that faithfulness to Jesus means being safe. It means putting ourselves in a safe place, 
not stepping out, not rising, you know, our head too high or anything. Just be safe. And what this text teaches us, what the life of the disciples, what Jesus' life teaches us, is that a life of faith is filled with risk. It's risky to have a hard conversation with someone that you need to have, or it can be risky to do the right thing, even if you know it's going to make your life harder. It can be risky to befriend an unbelieving neighbor. It can be risky and feel very risky to talk to someone about Jesus who doesn't believe in him. I mean, so many of the things Jesus calls us to feels like it's pulling us out of safety. It can be risky talking to your kids about Jesus. But if you think about your life, where you grew in the Christian faith, it was either because you took a risk or someone else did. The life of discipleship, the life of faithfulness requires a willingness to risk. There's a quote by a guy named Arlen Holtgren on this parable. He says, The very idea of risk-taking runs counter to a form of calculation that assumes that there is only one way to please God. Taking risks is also the work of faith and action. When it comes to serving Christ, one should be bold and not be afraid of risks. The words of promise from Jesus inviting all disciples into the joy of his kingdom are meant to be heard by all who do not worry too much about securing their own lives, but get on with lives of self-abandon and witness, knowing that the grace of God and Christ will more than compensate for any mistake they might make. Love the end of that quote. Ordinary faithfulness, holy ambition, but to live that kind of life, we got to get to the third invitation from this parable, which is unwavering trust. There has to be an unwavering trust in the goodness of God. I mean, that's what we see in these, the first two servants. They immediately went to work. They knew their master well enough that they were willing to risk these huge sums of money and they weren't afraid if they screwed it up and he was going to cast them into outer darkness. There was no trepidation, no timidity, no hesitation. Like they knew him so well. They're like, even if we fail, I think he will admire our ambition. Even if it doesn't turn out exactly the way we wanted, I think he'll still be proud. Contrast that with the third servant. The third servant somehow had gotten it into his head that the master was a hard man. And we don't know why he thought it. The first two certainly didn't think that. Maybe he was really afraid. He says he was afraid. Maybe he was afraid. So he's like, I just don't want to screw this up. Maybe he was lazy. Maybe he was bitter. Why is he the master? Why does he get all the money? And why did they get more than I get? This, none of this is fair. You know what? I'm not doing it. We don't know. We don't know why he thought this. What we do know, and the lesson here, is how we think about the master will drastically shape how we steward all that he's given to us. How we think about the master drastically shapes how we steward all that he's given to us. If we think he is cold, ruthless, stingy, mean, we're going to be very afraid as we steward things. If we think that he is abundant in his generosity, he's for us, not against us, 
I think that enables us to step out and to do hard things, knowing even if we fail, his love for us doesn't change. Now, (laughs) this unwavering trust in the goodness of God, what's hard is if you, you yank this parable out of context, it can actually really distort our view of God and make us more fearful. And it's really important for us to remember a couple of things. One, parables never give a complete picture of who our God is. Jesus earlier says his return will be like a thief in the night. That doesn't mean Jesus is a thief and he's coming to steal something. It just means his return will be unexpected. In this parable, it doesn't give us the full view of who God is. But even more, remember when Jesus teaches this parable. It's just a few days before he will willingly lay down his life for his disciples and all of us. And while he warns them about this outer darkness that's filled with weeping and gnashing and grinding of teeth, we know in just a few days Jesus is going to be on the cross, feeling abandoned by God in the outer darkness of judgment, weeping, grinding his teeth, and pain, and agony, as the greatest act of love the world's ever known. And he's going to endure all of those things. He endures the cross so that we don't have to live just as servants, but instead we might live as daughters and sons. Now, living as daughters and sons, it doesn't mean we have less responsibility to God. I would argue it means we have more responsibility to God. If we've learned anything in Matthew, we've learned that Jesus cares how we live. He cares about our behavior. It doesn't mean that. It just means the grace of God means we don't have to live in fear anymore. You know, think about it. When you're anxious, when you're afraid, when you're fearful, what happens? Defenses go up, and you enter into this mode of self-protection. Self, you're, you're protecting yourself. Walls are up. It's really, really hard to live a life of self-forgetfulness and love of others when the walls are up, and you're in that state. See, the only way we can actually live into the calling that God has put on our lives we can embody the love of Christ to other, is when the goal of self-preservation, when the fear and the anxiety go away, and instead we live from a place of grace, knowing that we are loved, not because we are perfect, not because things we do, but because of the finished work of Christ. And so I wonder for you, I wonder for you what, what invitation might God be putting before you today? Ordinary faithfulness. What holy ambition do you need to have? What risk might he be calling you to take? And I think when we understand his grace, we can acknowledge that so often we're just like that last servant. We bury the talent in the ground. He puts an invitation before us, a call, an opportunity, and out of fear, out of selfishness, out of any number of things, we bury it in the ground. But the grace of God is that He doesn't cast us into the outer darkness. Instead, you know what he does? He puts another opportunity before us. And another one. And another one. There's a quote I read years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since, by a man named Ronald Rollheiser. He says this, If we look back on our lives with honesty, we have to admit that all of the invitations that God has sent us 
of all of the invitations that God has sent us, we have probably accepted and acted only on a, a fraction of them. There have been countless times we have turned away from an invitation. For every invitation to maturity we have accepted, we have probably turned down a hundred. But that is the beauty and wonder of God's richness. God is not a petty creator, and creation itself is not a cheap mechanism with barely enough energy and resources to keep going. God is prodigal, abundant, and generous beyond our small fears and imaginations. I have a friend, he likes to ask people, he's a pastor, he'll ask his church, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And you might think like, well, if I was unafraid, I'd go, you know, I'd go skydiving or bungee jumping or he asked the church and people responded. And you know what most people said? It was things like, I would call my mom because I haven't talked to her in so long. I'd reach out to my brother. I'd step out in faith and change my job. I'd seek to be faithful with what God has put before me. And so I ask you, what would you do if you were not afraid? And what invitations might God be putting before you this morning? As you think about that question, we move to the time of our service where we celebrate that just a couple days after telling this parable about a very, very generous master, Jesus shows us the depths of God's generosity and grace towards us. He tells his disciples, he takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he said, this this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. I am giving myself for you, for your sins, for your missteps, your mistakes. I'm pouring myself out so that you can be reconciled to God and enter into the joy of the master. So if you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to take part in this meal, celebrating that in Christ, we don't have to live with this toxic pressure that we have to get everything right. Instead, we can live in the freedom of God's abundant generosity towards us. And we can, we can step out in acts of faith, trusting that even if we screw it up, God's not going to hold it against us. And God honors our heart in trying. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but instead you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.